Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we speak with the former Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency about the latest drug scandal to hit the Olympics and why allowing a 15-year-old Russian figure skating phenom to compete taints the entire games. We look back at the legacy of laughter left behind by Canadian movie director and producer Ivan Reitman, responsible for classics such as Ghostbusters, Beatballs, and Stripes, who passed away at the age of 75 over the weekend. But first, we look at the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time since it was enacted in 1988 to try to put an end to ongoing protests and blockades. What powers does it grant? Was it necessary? Will it work? What precedent does it set? Forget whispering sweet nothings. The federal government was all tough talk and tough new measures today aimed at forcing protesters in Ottawa and blockading different border crossings to go home. For the first time since it was enacted in 1988 today, Ottawa invoked the Emergencies Act. It gives the federal government extraordinary yet temporary powers. The prime minister says there are no plans to call in the military, but the act will be used to protect critical infrastructures such as borders and airports. Here's Justin Trudeau. The Emergencies Act will be used to strengthen and support law enforcement agencies at all levels across the country. This is about keeping Canadians safe, protecting people's jobs, and restoring confidence in our institutions. I want to be very clear. The scope of these measures will be time-limited, geographically targeted, as well as reasonable and proportionate to the threats they are meant to address. Another tool introduced today sees Ottawa going after the sources of funding, feeding the blockades and the protests. Crowdfunding platforms and payment service providers linked to them must now register with the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada, better known as FinTrack. Here's Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christia Freeland. If your truck is being used in these illegal blockades, your corporate accounts will be frozen. The insurance on your vehicle will be suspended. Send your semi-trailers home. So upping the ante there. Protest leaders, though, reacted today by saying they will not leave. So this is indeed a big moment in our history. Let's rewind. The Emergencies Act was enacted in 1988 to replace the War Measures Act. A year earlier, then-Minister of National Defence Perrin Beattie described the need for the new act this way. Bill C-77, the Emergencies Act, will replace the old War Measures Act. It includes safeguarded and appropriately limited powers to deal with four types of national emergencies. It ensures that the exceptional powers granted by Parliament will be no more than are needed for the specific emergency at hand. It will ensure a graduated response, not an overwhelming one. Well, Perrin Beattie is now the President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he joins me now. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. When you stood up in the House of Commons more than three decades ago now, did you ever anticipate sort of under what circumstances the act could be invoked? And does the current situation qualify? Certainly looked at the type of circumstances. And and one of those was where there would be a public order emergency that wasn't an insurrection across the country where the government was about to be toppled, but where local authorities didn't have the resources that they needed to ensure that, that the rule of law was maintained. Um, I won't second guess the the government on this. The government of Ontario uh, has indicated their support for it. Uh, The federal government has come to the conclusion that it's necessary to add resources. um, So they've decided to use it. The important thing is that the Emergencies Act 
is nuanced. It, it has a lot of protections built into it. It's time limited. Uh, it has to be reviewed by Parliament, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms applies, and so on. So it's very different from the old War Measures Act that, that preceded it. In terms of what it does and doesn't do, because I know there's always a lot of misconceptions, we think back to 1970, we think back to the War Measures Act, uh, and since this has never been used before, how, in which ways is it very different from what existed previously? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, it's covered by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That didn't exist at the time of the October 70 crisis when the uh, War Measures Act was imposed. Um, secondly, it can, it, it can be used in a much more nuanced way. Um, when the War Measures Act was imposed, it, it suspended civil rights right across the country. And in Quebec, it was dealing with a situation that was limited to Quebec, but everybody's rights were involved. And in Quebec itself, you had people woken up in the middle of the night and swept off to jail without access to a lawyer. Um, this is not the case here. Uh, your basic civil liberties uh, are maintained with this, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms applies. Um, you can be more nuanced in terms of the regions where which are affected, and the government intends to refer to specific types of facilities or, or regions, unlike some sort of blanket provision that applies right across the country. So that's significant as well. It's time limited um, and it's reviewable by parliament. So in all of these areas, there are checks and balances that simply didn't exist in the case of uh, the old War Measures Act. The, the War Measures Act was uh, was brought in in World War I. It was invoked then and it was used again in World War II. The other time was was the uh, October crisis in 1970. It was the nuclear option. It was the very last device that you would use. And it was so draconian that in emergencies that weren't as grave as an anticipated insurrection or wartime, that, that the government might not have the powers that were necessary to respond. Are you surprised that it took 35 some odd years for this to ever be used? I'm pleased that it took that long. I wish it were longer and, and uh, that that the government didn't feel it was necessary to use it now, but it was important to have it on the books. And what I wanted to do, because the War Measures Act was the most important suspension of civil liberties in my lifetime, wanted to have legislation that we considered in a period of, of, of calm, where you weren't in a crisis, where you could look at what's the range of emergencies you might have to deal with. An example for, would be, for, for example, an earthquake in the lower mainland of British Columbia, which would be limited in terms of the region, but, uh, but very dangerous, and where it may be necessary to commandeer private property or to bring in special regulations. Um, the, the War Measures Act just wouldn't have worked for something like that. Um, there's situations like this where, where provincial authorities or municipal authorities feel they don't have the resources that they need to do the job where it would be possible for the federal government to supplement that. Still, it should be a last resort. It should never be the first thing that, that, that is looked at. And it, sh it should be limited in its use, and it should be used with, with extreme care. When you saw the announcement today of how it was going to be used, what stood out for you? Frankly, the most uh, significant element was what uh, Christian Freeland announced in terms of financial measures. First of all, uh, targeting uh, crowd sharing programs that were bringing in money to, to uh, subsidize illegal activity. The second was that she said that for companies who had trucks involved, that their uh, corporate accounts could be frozen and, and that they would lose their insurance on their, on their trucks. That's uh, very significant. 
And she's also saying that where people are involved in, in uh, this, that their accounts could be affected as well. And the financial institutions would have the ability to suspend that and to report it to the authorities. Now, these measures are, are perhaps more significant than, than other elements that were announced today. When we look back at, at when you first introduced this, this act, and we come forward 35 some odd years again, and, and we announce we're using it for the very first time. It sounds very dramatic that Canada's never used this before, and now they're going to invoke these powers to deal with what started off as protests, more or less. Uh, in terms of as a day for our country, do you think this is a, a good day or a bad day or neither? It's a sad period for our country. Uh, our international reputation has been damaged. The, uh, our democratic institutions have been put into challenge by, by people who don't accept the rule of law. And uh, all of our rights and freedoms have been affected. And we've, we've suffered economic damage as well. It should never have come to this. And uh, there's plenty of opportunity after this is over to look at who's to blame and what could have been done differently. But uh, it's, it's a sad day, and it's unfortunate that we should come to the point where our government felt it was necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act. Let's hope that at this point, the people involved in, in the blockades wind it down, go home, go home peacefully, as people did ultimately from the Ambassador Bridge. That's what all of us hope at this point, and that, that we won't see more damage done or somebody injured. Perrin Beatty, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. The women's figure skating competition of the 2022 Beijing Olympics will go ahead with its gold medal favorite and perhaps an already tarnished outcome. Late Sunday, the Court of Arbitration for Sports ruled that 15-year-old Russian figure skating phenom Camilla Valieva will be allowed to compete despite failing a pre-games drug test back in late December. And critics point to Russian doping as damaging to Olympic sport and their own athletes. Rob Keeler is former Deputy Director General with the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, and now Director General of Global Athlete, an international athlete-led movement fighting for a strengthened doping system and better protection for athletes around the world. Rob Keeler joins me now. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So just to kick off, if, if listeners haven't been overly familiar with the with the Valieva affair, um, what's been your assessment of how it's been handled and what are some of the details? How did this happen and what was she found to have been using that was against the rules? Yeah, so if we look back at what, what happened in terms of now more information's come out, we're still not 100% on, on all the details, but her sample was collected on the 25th of December at the Nationals in, in Moscow or in, in Russia. And that sample was sent to the Stockholm Laboratory and... You know, normally leading up to the games, the Russian anti-doping agency or any anti-doping organization would be following up and, and finding out where the result was for any athlete going to the games. The World Anti-Doping Agency has a monitoring role, so they should have been doing the same thing. And then the IOC uses an organization that they, they subcontract called the International Testing Authority, who should have also been following up on any outstanding tests. So we have a, a series of organizations that weren't doing their job, and now we are looking at them pointing fingers at each other. And as a result, um, Camila's positive test came days before uh, she was ready to compete in, in, in Beijing. 
So that's where we are today. And she has a positive test for a, a drug similar to melodonium, which most people would, would know, which is, it helps increase the blood flow to the heart. And, you know, it is on the banned substance list of the World Anti-Doping Agency. And the World Anti-Doping Agency rules are something, they have strict liability. So if it's found in your system, you're responsible. Now, there are potential for reductions if, if someone you didn't know what's going in your system and you can prove you didn't know, but a reduction, not a, a, a the ability to get off. And I think this is where the problems lie. And I mean, I'm happy to talk about that further uh, on why that's happened, but that's kind of the summary of where we are today. And yet she tested positive for this weeks ago, right? So presumably this all should have been dealt with before the Olympics even began. Well, she, yeah, it should have been, she was the, the sample was collected on the 25th of December. The international standard for laboratory indicates that the sample should be turned around in a maximum of 10 days. And the, the, obviously that wasn't the case. So you have, you, you have an athlete stuck in this position. Now we look at a bigger picture here of what the system is looking like and the system with athletes for the past six years have been calling for a complete reform of the anti-doping and, and, and the World Anti-Doping Agency because of simple issues like this, and also calling for a complete reform of the Court of Arbitration of Sport. And to make a trifecta, we have been also calling for a reform of the International Olympic Committee, as well as the Court of Arbitration of Sport. The overall ecosystem is failed, it's flawed, and it's, it's fairly broken. And that's why athletes are losing confidence, and that's why the public's losing confidence in this whole movement. If you take this specific example of Camilla Valieva, obviously a gold medal favorite, so a mm -hmm. big deal, probably the most high-profile Russian athlete coming into these Olympics. Um, where has the system once again failed? And specifically when it comes to Russia, where has it failed the rest of the world once again when it comes to the Russian approach to doping and cheating? Well, I, th I think if we take a step back from Camilla and talk about the big picture on, on failing the system and the system failing athletes, and we squarely put our blame, as I said earlier, on, on three organizations, the World Anti-Doping Agency, the International Olympic Committee, and the Court of Arbitration Sport, all who had the opportunity to put on tough sanctions on Russia for the most severe breach to the integrity of sport for what they did at the Sochi Olympic Games. And if any of the listeners aren't sure, I would encourage you to look at a documentary called Icarus, and that will explain everything to you. Um, so they had this all this evidence that russia was undermining the system that everyone all russian athletes were cheating in sochi and basically these three organizations never suspended russia they gave them a slap on the wrist and we, as we always say they instead of banding them they rebranded them because in pyeongchang they competed as olympic athletes from russia in beijing they're competing as russian olympic committee and there really hasn't been a desire for the Russian authorities to implement cultural change and a drug-free sport mentality because for them, it's business as usual. So that's why we're left with a young athlete that's stuck in a system. And we've talked to athletes, both whistleblowers, current athletes and former athletes involved in the Russian system. And it's clear that you're either part of the system or you're out of the system. And being part of that system sometimes may require you to take performance-enhancing drugs. So there was no reason to, to reform because there's never been, been a sanction. And that's where all of these organizations have, have favored politics over principle. 
favored Russian interests over athlete interests and, and have completely undermined the entire integrity of sport. And we have athletes in, in Beijing right now, figure skating athletes, that have yet to have the podium, that have yet to be able to get their medals because of this outstanding issue. And, and sh- this 15-year-old is allowed to compete again in, in the women's individual. And that is a severe blow to, to clean sport. I'm speaking with Rob Keeler, the former Deputy Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency and now Director General of Global Athlete, about the reinstatement, at least, or um, the allowance of, of Kamila Valieva, 15-year-old Russian figure skater, the gold medal favorite, to compete despite a positive drug test back in late December. Uh, one of the things we can talk, we'll talk about in a bit is just, it's Valieva you're hoping to protect here. But just to st- take a step back, when you talk about the IOC and different organizations sort of not leaning hard enough on Russia to reform, where is the benefit for sport in general, for all those involved in the Olympic movement, not to punish a repeat offender when it comes to cheating, which always questions the fairness of the games to begin with? You know, to put it quite simply, if, if so Russia carried out the, the, the as I said, the, probably the biggest breach of the integrity of sport in this century um, at the Olympic Games, that athletes were involved. They were, they were involved in the system. The, the top of government was involved. The Olympic Committee was involved. And the lab was involved. And they received a slap on the wrist. If you take an athlete who does the same and has a performance-enhancing substance found in them, the authorities very quickly throw the book at an athlete and give them four-year sanctions. So we have a very unbalanced system where stakeholders, such as Russia, are treated very different than, than athletes. And this is one of the issues that we, we see over and over again, where the, the, the system's leaning on the powerful and merciless on the weak. And that's kind of what we see today. Now, when it comes to to Camilla, she, and this is where we take a little bit of a different approach. She's, she's a 15 year old child um, who was caught in a system that had no desire to reform. And in fairness of sport, even though she is a minor, she is competing at the Olympic Games. So she has to abide by the objective rules, not subjective rules. The court of arbitration decided to use subjective rules and to allow her to compete which has frustrated every single athlete that's at the games. And for them, it's a blow to the integrity of sport. But not only that, I mean, I think Camilla probably is a victim of, of of the doping program in Russia. And by allowing her to take the ice in, in less than 24 hours and putting her in the world, in front of the world and being labeled as, as a cheat, the psychological damage that they're doing to her by putting out there and not removing her from that event um, is, is the saying is, you know, the victim continues to get victimized and they should have stuck to the rules, used principle, followed the rule of law and suspended her from the competition and, and allowed her to move on and, and to have that, that, that closure and, and repair for, for whether it's the next Olympic Games and to find out more what's actually what happened. So I think that the entire system has let down Camilla. They've let down the clean athletes, and they've let down athletes that have have really lost the opportunity to celebrate victories, potentially lose sponsorship opportunities. Because you know, in Olympics, what defines an athlete and the podium is an important part of that. 
I'm back with Rob Keeler, former Deputy Director General with the World Anti-Doping Agency and now Director General of Global Athlete, an international athlete-led movement fighting for a strengthened doping system and better protection for athletes. Uh, we've been speaking about Camilla Valieva, the 15-year-old Russian figure skater who will be allowed to compete despite a positive drugs test in late December uh, after a court decision. Um, I was reading that... that not only will there not be a medal ceremony for the team event in which Canada finished fourth, uh, so and, and the Russians won gold, uh, but because of Valieva, there won't be a, a medal ceremony for that. If Valieva wins a medal in the individual competition, the IOC are already saying there's not going to be a medal ceremony. So somehow this has gone from being ridiculous to, to, to absurd to some extent. They, they've made a mockery of the entire thing. And that, that's where... As I said, when when you don't follow the rule of law, uh, which is pretty clear, and it got, provides direction when something like this happens, people start making stuff up as it goes along, and that's kind of what we've, we're experiencing for the past. I laugh, but it's not funny. Athletes have been experienced for for the last since since Sochi, where things become subjective versus objective, and and the powerful influence of certain countries, such as Russia. Um, play into to results and decisions that don't match what's in the rules. So it, it's become a farcical facade. You made an interesting point uh, when we were speaking a bit earlier about Valieva and this drug that she tested positive for. I mean, part of the ruling that allowed her to compete was that she was young, that she was under 18, so she's a protected person. Um, and you were saying that the drug that she was found to have tested positive for is not even allowed to be uh, prescribed to someone under 18 in Russia. Yeah, under under Russian medical guidelines, it's you have to be eighteen or over um, to provide the, the substance to someone. So, I mean that that's one issue in itself. But you know, we we talk about it again the the fact that Russia is allowed to treat athletes the way they're treating them and bringing them to these games um, undermines both their protection and the protection of clean sport. So everyone's suffering. So if Sochi can fix this after what was essentially industrial level uh, doping that was going on. And again, I've seen the movie Icarus. I highly recommend it. Um, and it does go into a lot of detail, but just how that unfolded. If that wasn't enough and this hasn't mm -hmm. been enough, how do you fix the system? Well, it's a good question. And this is where I think we are mobilizing athletes like never before. Athletes are standing together are pushing the system and are doing force change. I mean, I can give you examples over the past two years where the landscape has changed because athletes have stood up. So when it comes to Rule 50, the IOC used to say that athletes couldn't use their voice uh, to stand up for social and racial justice. Athletes pushed and had that rule relaxed. Athletes have pushed to allow the big babies to the to Tokyo Games to breastfeed their, their infants. The IOC wasn't going to let them. The IOC, the athletes pushed to have Belarus suspended because their Belarusian Olympic Committee was 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 abusing their athletes. So time after time, it's been forced change, and athletes realize they have the power and the ability to to force that change. So I think we're seeing a wave of athlete activism like we've never seen before, and and we're seeing partners join us, and the partners are human rights experts, where we believe that the UN Declaration of Human Rights should be embedded into the Olympic Charter. And if you do that, you, you provide a lot of protection for athletes. So you have the protection of the child. You have the right to collectively bargain. You have the right to fair, open, and, and a judicial system, which the Court of Arbitration isn't. It is it's not an open process. It, it's not transparent. So those are things we'd like to see. Now, the next step 
is there has to be accountability from sponsors that feed this multi-billion dollar industry. The IOC brings in $1.4 billion a year, less than 0.5% of those revenues are given directly from the IOC to athletes. So sponsors need to, to shift their thinking of, of supporting athletes, creating a safer space for them, and putting their weight behind. And I, and I put governments in that category as well, that governments need to make sure that these athletes are safe and they're going into safe games and safe environments. So they need to have some oversight and demand change of this whole entire movement. Uh, otherwise, athletes will continue to be forced change and it'll be an adversarial approach as opposed to a partnership approach. So we think that's the way to go is independent collective bargaining to allow athletes to have representatives representing their rights and their views. Certainly for Olympic athletes, it's more difficult. They don't have the profile of, say, a Naomi Osaka or, you know, a lot of these athletes are competing in more <clears throat> sort of more obscure sports. They compete once every, we see them really once every four years. So how do you ensure that those athletes, and I guess you've, you've answered the question, but how do you ensure that those athletes who may not be household names get to be able to stand up for themselves as athletes? So that's the inherent problem right there is, is the kind of fight against is the power imbalance and the power imbalance is, is with, with with Camila the power imbalance is with every single Olympian where they're powerless uh, they've been in an environment where the coaches and, and federations have all the power and the athletes have no power and so this is where the, the, that, that results in abuse that results in athletes being treated unfairly and that fosters a very unhealthy environment because athletes are afraid to speak up they're afraid to come forward because the fear of retribution is, is real. So that's where athlete representation and having organization to represent athletes for them and have their interests as the primary interest and not the commercial gain, but their interest in their well-being. That's the way of the future because otherwise it's just going to continue to replicate and undermine the system. We don't want the Olympics to die. We want the Olympics to flourish. We want to see it earn more revenues. But that has to be done as a 50-50 partnership with athletes involved and, and be, be sitting at the table to enable the right decision to be made to reflect what athletes want and athletes need. As a last question to you, Raba, in the near future, do you expect to see the end of these sorts of, of, of drug scandals or are, you, are these going to continue until the, until the system is ultimately fixed? Are we doing enough, in other words? I don't think we are doing enough. I mean, the United States government, when it comes to anti-doping, threatened and, re and didn't pay the World Anti-Doping Agency for 12 months because they were not happy with the reforms. They weren't happy with the, the independence of the, the Anti-Doping Agency of WADA. And that's primarily because the International Olympic Committee, the reality is they have yielded influence over everybody. So they have influence and control over WADA. They have influence over control over the Court of Arbitration of Sport. I mean, the Court of Arbitration of Sport, the president of that organization is also the vice, vice, vice uh, president of the International Olympic Committee. So there's a major conflicts of interests. So that, I think that's where, where we see if there's not reform, I, the system will repeat itself. It's repeated itself in 2014. It repeated itself in 2018. And now we're here in 2022 and it's repeating itself again. So uh, if this is not a wake-up call, I don't think we'll ever have one. Uh, but we can't stop fighting because athletes deserve better and they deserve a safer environment. Rob Keeler, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Ben. One of the biggest Canadian names in the movie business died over the weekend. 
Ivan Reitman passed away at home in California at the age of 75. He was behind some of the most loved comedies of all time, including his producer of Animal House and his director as well of a whole slew of movies, including Meatballs, Stripes, and of course, Ghostbusters, and later Twins, Kindergarten Cop, and Dave. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about Reitman's unique recipe for success and his legacy is Eric Alper, entertainment publicist and music commentator. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, it was just looking at the at the amount of movies that he was involved in, Ivan Reitman was involved in, it's spectacular, the kind of, I mean, it's sort of like a template of my youth to some extent with Animal House <laughs> and Meatballs and Stripes. And I know how old you are now. Exactly. Yeah, I'm 50. So that's for 51 actually now. Uh, tell me a bit about what it was that, that, that allowed, what his key to success was, because it wasn't always critically acclaimed, was it? No, and I, and I think a large part of it is why Canadians are so funny in the first place. And there are so many reasons of, you know, the fact that we get bombarded by the UK sensibilities and the US giant entertainment making machine. It makes us feel a little bit, um, you know, non-superior to the rest of the planet. And if you can't laugh at yourself, you can't really laugh at anything. And I think that's where where it came from. It, it's that line that, you know, you have to be able to laugh at tragedy just to stop yourself from crying. And when he moved here, he probably had no idea what to do. And he's in a place like Hamilton, Ontario, and no slight to Hamilton, Ontario people, but it's not the most heavy-duty entertainment site in the world, especially when you're so close to something as big like Toronto. So the ability for him to take that that funniness that sensibility that well we could just be quirky because nobody's looking at us and nobody cares about what we do that's where you end up with him producing animal house and then using bill murray and really discovering him and realizing that he could be much bigger than saturday night live um into films like meatballs and stripes and then ghostbusters and that led to just an a, 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 an obscene amount of comedy wealth um, before, during, and after him. And I think he influenced a lot of people that came after him from the kids in the hall to Mike Myers um, and hung out with people like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and, and all the people from, um, you know, the old, old SCTV days of John Candy and Martin Short, just his ability to, make things a little bit weird, a little bit crude. I mean, I don't know if Animal House could even be made today. I don't even know if Meatballs could even be made today. Certainly not Stripes. Um, but that's why I think Ivan was so endearing was he was just able to push the envelope on what we would consider okay and normal in comedy. And I, we loved him for it. It's always remarkable, and you're right, because as a Canadian, um, I think we were exposed to sort of, oh, look, there are Canadian stars in these movies. Um, such as, I remember John Candy from Stripes vividly uh, from that era. But what do you think? I mean, his movies have have seemed to have, and you're right, they probably couldn't make Stripes or Animal House today. But in terms of sort of meatballs and Ghostbusters, his movies far outlasted their critical acclaim at the time. They were far more successful than critically acclaimed, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, and I think part of it is those, um, um, you know, when you're a film critic, you're kind of looking for some sort of illumination into the human ex experience and the human existence um, and how human beings relate to one another. Um, but they would never have, you know, John Belushi pretend that he's a pimple um, in Animal House or having, you know, 
something like meatballs where you could stand up for for being right and you can stand up to your bullies and geeks are okay and i think the ability for him to still talk about what makes us all human, what makes us all likable. There was always a heart in what he did. Yes, Ghostbusters might have had, you know, ghosts in it and, and you know, a little bit of, of sci-fi to it. But overall, it was just the relationship between the Ghostbusters that, that made it so worthwhile. And the ability to take somebody like a strong man, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and turn him into a likable, funny character in twins. And then in kindergarten cop using the president of the United States of America, that high power of office that's normally not to be made fun of at that time for Kevin Klein and Dave, all of those films had very much um, a soul searching um, relevance in it that made us all be able to relate to these people. Even if you were, you know, six foot eight and 350 pounds like Arnold, or you were the president of the United States. Yeah, it was hard to have imagined. And people forget when twins first came out specifically that, that, you know, Schwarzenegger had been identified with the first Terminator movie, obviously that had made movies like predator. I mean, this was not meant to be, this was not someone anyone saw as being a comic lead. And then all of a sudden, you know, Ivan Reitman did. And it's, uh, yeah. it's been... nobody wanted this film made. In fact, there was so much uncertainty around the project that all of the producers are no, and Danny DeVito, who played the other main role, um, all took away their fees for a share of the profits, meaning nobody got paid their regular rate. But if the movie did well, they would all get points on a movie. They would all take a percentage, which is essentially what Marvel actors and actresses do now. They kind of say, look, you give me $100,000 for my schedule, but I'm going to take 0.1% of the profits. And then over the course of a billion dollars, that is in the you know tens of millions of dollars. And that's exactly what happened with twins. Um, it, it was supposed to, you know, it was made for $18 million. It made over $300 million at the box office. So they all got very wealthy on taking a chance. And it wasn't because of that money or that contract. They did it because they all wanted to work with Ivan. They thought that, you know, that the, the, the movie would just do so well. Um, that they just believed in it so much. And the same thing with Kindergarten Cop, that to take somebody like Arnold, who really had no sense of humor, at least to all of us, we just thought he was just, you know, this Terminator robot who loved violence and just liked to shoot people. But making him human and making him funny um, probably bought the next 40 years of Arnold's career and even more so for the rest of his life. I was going to say, it's tough to put into words because of the number of movies he made and just how successful he was Midas touch-wise. But if you look at Ivan Reitman's legacy uh, in modern film, what do you think it is? Um, I, I think being a great father um, to his son, Jason, um, and his daughters. Jason is now a, a huge film director um, <laughs> as well. Um, I, I, and I think really just pushing the envelope for what, we would consider comedy in North America. Just his fingertips are all over the 1970s and 80s and early 90s films that told us how to laugh. And it's things that we all we all kind of still hold dear. We still hold up Ghostbusters long after all the different kinds of sequels come out. The originals are still the best one. Um, and, and a large part of that has to do with Ivan's sensibility and smarts. We can certainly thank him for uh, for Bill Murray too, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> if, if absolutely. 
Um, I'm with uh, Eric Alper. Uh, we're talking about the legacy of, of Ivan Reitman, who passed away over the weekend, and the many fantastic movies that he was involved with that have really stood the test of time, specifically as a Canadian. Uh, always proud of those movies. Uh, we're going to change gears a bit when we come back after the break, and I'm going to talk to Eric, uh, entertainment publicist and music commentator. It is Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about love songs and what makes a great love song and why certain ones seem to stick with us forever. That's next. Welcome back. I'm with Eric Alper, entertainment publicist and music commentator. Of course, all evening, we've been asking you to submit your favorite Valentine's Day songs, your favorite love songs. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit about Eric because he knows this business really well. I wanted to talk a bit about what makes a successful love song, because just like Christmas songs, to some extent, you can kind of tell the ones that are organic and the ones that were sort of created, you know, sometimes you get an album, you go, here comes the ballad, right? And you just knew that it was, <laughs> you know, it was built for something like it was built for a specific release for a specific audience. Um, so, so in your estimation, what, what are the secret or ingredients to a perfect, a perfect love song? I think first and foremost, it has to be written about me. <laughs> um, it, 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 that's a surefire way of having a hit. And, uh, no, I, I, I think because music and especially the lyrics, um, these, these musicians and artists are able to say the things that we've longed to hear and longed to say, um, sometimes it's done with lyrics. And sometimes in the case of say unchained melody by the righteous brothers, you have this swooping orchestral finale that almost speaks as loud, if not louder than the actual lyrics in there. So I think part of it is, um, schmaltzy is good. Um, big is better. Um, and you know, they, they're not afraid to, to let their, sh their, their love shown. Um, and they have to, because while they write the song in complete isolation away from the rest of the world, whether it's a love song or a breakup song, um, you won't get to decide once you release it how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are going to be singing that lyric back to you night after night when you're on tour. So you better be sure that you're okay with this. If not, you're going to be thinking about your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend for the rest of your life while you're on stage in front of all of these strangers. But, you know, if you take a look at some of the, the greatest love songs, like At Last by Etta James or Let's Stay Together by Al Green, it, 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 the, the ability to articulate those that moment of love, that, that vow of marriage, the, you know, uh, even a song like I Will Always Love You by Dolly Barton that was later covered by Whitney Houston. Um, people say that, but they kind of, I don't know. My wife would smirk if I ever said that. You know, like she would just be like, she'd push me away. She'd be like, what do you want? You know what I mean? But yeah. so I think though, but when I put on Whitney Houston or Al Green, yeah, you better believe I, you know, I, I become that romantic. So I think it's just the ability to... Um, to kind of be bigger than than life and say the things that that you want to hear i mean the beatles were right right yeah. you know let me tell you a secret do you want to know a secret you know yeah. let me whisper you know in your ear the words i want to hear there were so many you know out of the 240 beatles songs that they released during their career officially it's something like 190 of them have the words i me you we or us in the title and that's why that they're so great as as romantic, you know, writers is because they they made it seem like that song was just written for us, not not you and I. Although I'd yeah. be okay with that, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, in exactly. general. 
Exactly. Um, it's funny when you look back at sort of the most, the world's most famous artists, you know, you look at the Elvis Presley's and the Beatles and so on. They all have kind of their signature or a few yeah. signature romance tracks. Um, I, I was trying to, I, even Brian, I remember living in England when everything I do, I do it for you was number one yeah. for, 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 for like years. For, forever, forever. Yeah. yeah. In fact, so much so that people started giving me a hard time. And I was living in Edinburgh, started giving so, me a hard time for being Canadian because they were like, you got to so, take so much. So Ben, yeah. it's still number one. Yeah, remarkable. It's exactly, no, like, <laughs> it isn't. But I know what you mean. Um, so, what, what are your, what are your, what are your some of your favorites? What are your oh, favorite? I, I mean, you know, just to that point, um, I've been in record label meetings where you have artists that are big in the rock world, and the marketing people and the president of the record labels will say, "Where's your ballad?" Like you need the ballad. Extreme was a heavy metal funk band, and then they came out with more than words and right. completely blew them away. Bon Jovi was big. I mean, Bon Jovi was really big, but he wasn't as big until he put out, you know, "I'll Be There for You" or, um, you know, "Wanted Dead or Alive." You know, these right. ballads are huge. But I think "God Only Knows" by the Beach Boys is always right. a good one. "Be My Baby" by the Ronettes is such a great one, especially yeah. because you know we, we we just lost Ronnie Spector um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, something by the Beatles. I mean, even Frank Sinatra has said that that's the greatest love song ever written and over 500 artists have covered it. Um, what a wonderful world by Sam cook, my girl by the temptation. There's yep. so many older songs that I think it takes a couple of decades sometimes for these new songs to, um, to kind of develop into classics. True. And especially these days with music a bit more fragmented than it was. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember back when songs like Endless Love came out. I mean, there was no yeah. avoiding Endless Love. No. Um, whether you, no. I, remember, I was just a, like, I was a nine year old boy. I was like, I used and to. And that's I used amazing to, that you bring yeah. that up, right? Yeah. I remember hearing that in grade six, and my parents yeah. loved that song. So yeah. there's nothing like, and no slight to Taylor Swift, although I know she's listening. Um, the, the, the ability, the ability for her to write a song like my parents wouldn't know the song. I may know the song, but I have to because I'm in music. But like my daughter, who's 19, knows all of her music. But it are there so many songs that are that cross that generation as much as like, you know, The Girl Is Mine by Michael Jackson or When a Man Loves a Woman that like 60s, you know, my, you know, recorded 1966. It's still in probably a dozen films each and every year. I was just thinking about, you know, sort of this, even as a, when you were younger, you'd hear songs from like ballads from the past. I think, wow, that's a great song. I remember um, Sam Cooke's You Send Me. I was always, yeah. he was one of those. Uh, and, and now I'm going to forget the name. Why am I going to forget the name of the, of, of, uh, of the song that from, um, from Witness? Uh, don't know much about history. Don't know much. I'm going to forget the name of the actual title of the song. Yeah, that's um, okay. But what, that Whitney Houston? No, the um, Sam Cooke song from um, from, oh, from Witness from from Witness. Oh, with oh, oh wait, uh, what a not, wonderful world! What a wonderful world it would be. Yeah, when, not yeah. you send me. It's not, not you send me. You send me. No, but yeah, just, one of those. It, it, yeah, you know what? Just put on any Sam Cooke greatest hits. If if you know, there, there's a reason why I think the U.S. population went up seven percent after that album came out. You know, exactly. nine months it was suddenly. How come all these babies are being born? It's like oh. Oh, Sam Cooke just put an album, you know, or Marvin Gaye, you yeah. know, you put on, yeah. let's get it on. And it's like, even if you're in the room, you're kind of like feeling a little bit lonely. You're like, ah, I'm going to go eat some chocolate cake now just to like satisfy my hunger right now. That was a great one. I remember there was another one um, 
back when Frank Sinatra record that came out in the, that, that, that my, you know, was, was, was apparently partially responsible for a baby boom in the, you know, in the late, late forties, right, right, right. right. Early fifties. And it's funny, uh, like these, these songs that are really popular now, the, the, the newer ones, people like Harry, uh, like Harry Connick Jr. Or Michael Buble, they're just throwback to the fifties and sixties anyway, you know, yeah. they, they just do that style. I guess that's the one thing about, about love tracks that seems to be, is that they never go out of fashion. Which is which is really interesting because music has changed so much, even in you know in the, my lifetime, my fifty one years, it's gone all over the place. But ballads are ballads, and they almost still all sound the same. Like a new Adele ballad doesn't sound that much different from a Cyndi Lauper ballad or a Madonna ballad right. or, or or a Roberta Flack ballad. Like they're not that different compared to how different other music is these days. Are you telling me that the music industry is full of formula, Ben? Because <laughs> that. I'm I'm shocked. But, you know, like, it, it's funny, like a song like Someone Like You, which often gets tagged as a love song, is a is a breakup song. But it's True. in the same style as Hello by Adele, which is yeah. a love song. So there's not much different, really. And if you're not listening to the lyrics and you have Every Breath You Take by the Police as your wedding song, and so many people do, even though it's a song about stalkers, um, yep. many, maybe people just aren't listening to the lyrics as much as we think they are. You know, maybe you have to spell it out. Like, I love you, you know, yeah, by Ben O'Hara Bryan, you know, I, th- I, I think Sting used to talk about that quite often that he, uh, <laughs> that he, that he was shocked that people thought every breath you take was a love song, but Eric Alper, <laughs> it's been, thank you so much for your insight. No have problem. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having Thanks. me.